from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House has appointed the next U.S. chief data scientist. The appointee, Denise Ross, previously served as a senior advisor in the Obama administration. During her tenure, she co-founded the White House's police data initiative. The chief data scientist role is responsible for managing federal data and collaborating with data innovators at all levels of government. Ross will start that position immediately. The Defense Department is reducing its standards for the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. That change comes after the Pentagon wrapped up a six-month internal program review. The update will remove certain levels of the CMMC's framework, aiming to improve the implementation of the system. Under the revised approach, DOD plans to clarify the standard, improve scalabilities, and reduce costs. The chief executive officer of the CMMC accreditation body, Matthew Travis, says he supports the DOD's decision to scale back and streamline the program. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, will require agencies to speed up their response to cyber vulnerabilities that they identify in their online systems. CISA will continuously update its catalog of notable cyber weaknesses in agency security. The new directive from CISA says it aims to improve cybersecurity and reduce exposure to cyber attacks. We'll talk more about that directive later in tonight's program. China is turning the climate crisis into an advantage in its competition with the United States, but the U.S. still has a window of opportunity to keep up and stay ahead. Erin Sikorsky is the director of the Center for Climate and Security. She previously served on the National Intelligence Council. Erin, welcome back to the program. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, DOD always talks about China as the pacing threat. You say that climate change should be the shaping threat. What do you mean by that? Sure. Climate change is going to shape the landscape in which our military has to operate. So this means not only on the battlefield with extreme temperatures, extreme weather, but also in terms of how our adversaries and competitors behave. And that's what we're seeing with China right now, is climate change is not only affecting them internally, but also affecting where they compete, how they reach out to other countries, and really driving uh, and shaping how, how they interact in, in the world stage. You know, you say that China is not only taking climate change into account, mm -hmm. but taking advantage of it. In what way? So there are two different ways uh, that we primarily see China doing this. One is by uh, leveraging it with countries that are vulnerable to climate effects to try and gain their support. And we've seen this in the Pacific Islands where China has reached out to say, we'll help you deal with climate change shocks. And then those countries perhaps change their position on Taiwan, other issues that China cares about. The other way we've seen it is in competition for uh, critical minerals, things you need for renewable energy and the energy transition. China's trying to take the lead there and really uh, uh, compete economically and make sure they control those minerals going forward. You also say that the United States really doesn't have a, a, a climate lens to its strategic security policy towards China. 
Explain that a little bit more and what your recommendations would be so that the U.S. isn't caught off guard. Sure. So to be fair, I think they're actually building a climate lens right now as they build the national defense strategy and the reports that the Defense Department released a few weeks ago are, are moving in that direction. And what this means is when thinking about how China will face climate risks, understanding what those risks are, being able to bring the science to our strategic planning and understanding and finding areas in which we can compete, uh, reaching to allies and partners, showing them that we can support them in, in managing climate risks. I think President Biden's statement at the meeting in Glasgow earlier this week uh, was important when he called out China for not being there. That shows that we are leading and, and, and they need to step up as well. You mentioned uh, allies and partners. What's the best way for the U.S. to work together with them so that we can confront China's, uh, um, you know, the risks that we might face together? Sure. I think one, one thing we can do is share the technology and the tools that we have that we're developing to manage climate risks to our own military installations and bases. And that's something the Pentagon has said they will do. They've built a tool to measure those risks. They're going to share it with partners like South Korea, uh, Japan. I think that's a really good first step. I think there's also work we can do on, again, on renewable energy, helping other countries uh, finance and think through how they move to clean energy and being the partner of first choice there uh, for, for those countries. You mentioned in your article that there are areas that we can collaborate and cooperate with China. I, that's interesting. How do we do that? Sure, and, and absolutely it'll be a challenge, but I think you can look to some examples from the Cold War where we collaborated or, or, or we worked with Russia to share data and information um, on, on certain topics that were of mutual concern. I think we should look for opportunities for scientific collaboration, data sharing, to reduce the risks of miscalculation, misunderstanding, um, and, and build a shared picture of climate climate risks in the Indo-Pacific and other places. You mentioned Russia. Mm -hmm. So do these recommendations apply to Russia as well? I think Russia is a little bit of a different beast than, than China, but I do think it's really important for the U.S. to understand how climate change will shape uh, risks in, in Russia, uh, shape the Arctic, for example, and how Russia is trying to take advantage there of melting ice to have access to minerals, access to shipping lanes. That absolutely has to be part of the U.S. Uh, strategy in that part of the world is, is the climate piece as well. What about taking into, a, into account China's unique vulnerabilities to climate change? How does the U.S. do that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, critical. You know, China has millions of people living in coastal communities that are threatened by sea level rise. They have uh, food security issues related to climate. And so when the U.S. is assessing Chinese plans and strategies and decision making, we need to understand how those climate shocks internally that could create instability in China as well are understood and, and taken into account. What would be your kind of your last um, recommendation for the Pentagon particularly when it comes to dealing with the effects of climate change? I think the most important thing is that you need to mainstream the climate issue across all aspects of the work there. It can't be siloed off in one office that, that manages climate alone, but instead all of the regional uh, COCOMs have to be able to bring that climate lens to their work. You need to have a climate smart workforce. And I know the Pentagon's working on that and it's really exciting to see. All right. Well, Aaron, thanks very much. We'll see what happens. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Coming next, national security risks increase when you add climate change into the mix. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the tools and resources the intelligence community needs to take on the growing challenge.
You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The intelligence community is sounding the alarm that the effects of climate change will worsen risks to national security. But the IC must pivot resources and capabilities to respond effectively to those new threats. That's according to Rolf Moat Larsen. He's a 23-year veteran of the CIA and led the Department of Energy's intelligence unit from 2005 to 2008. He's currently a senior fellow at the Belfer Center. Rolf, welcome to the program. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Can you outline for us what the threats to national security would look like as a result of climate change? One of the things that's good about making this pivot you you de you described is that we do know a lot about the threats that are coming at us because they're happening as we speak. They're unfolding in the world around us. The question is which ones affect national and global security and then what should the intelligence and defense community, the national security community in the United States and, uh, and around the world do about it? And there are threats like water, scarcity, energy, and, and environmental competition, uh, the regional conflicts that are spawned by people that are displaced, increased waves of refugee crises, which we've already seen. And we're already seeing all of these things, infectious diseases, pandemics, and rise in, in, in those. So those are some of the big problems we face. There was a report that was recently issued by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that said that the threats to U.S. national security interests will increase as a result of climate change. Do you think that's not enough? It's a start. And, and you have to know what you're trying to do or what the problem is uh, before you can decide how to make that pivot of, of capability resources. And I would also say culture uh, and thinking about the problem. And so, yeah, it's a good start. What, what the intelligence community now has to do, led by the director of national intelligence, is decide how they can give President Biden and this administration and then future administrations better, what we call a decision advantage in intelligence. How can they make better climate policies and how can we to undertake action that'll mitigate some of these problems? That's the essential challenge to make that that pivot. Well, aside from the uh, shift in mindset, talk about the shift in resources that you'd like to see in the intelligence community that would address these threats. The, the big challenge always when you're confronting an unprecedented new challenge is how do you organize to do it? So what's the organizational units that are created? And, and do you do that before you know what you're trying to do or decide what you're going to do and then create the organization? So I would, I would submit that the intelligence community needs to first think through what it thinks it needs to do and then create an organization that's tailor-made to do those things, including working with our foreign partners, recruiting new kinds of sources, and, and other things that the intelligence community has traditionally done with its capabilities. Well, one thing is that the CIA director, Bill Burns, has announced that he's establishing the Transnational and Technology Mission Center. And he says that the focus will be on lots of issues, but one of them is climate change and global health. Do you think that's a step in the right direction? Is it enough for CIA? Right. Right. It's certainly not enough. That's, uh, I think the challenge is going to be uh, taking these ideas and then and, and actualizing them. So in, in that case, I think it's a great initiative. It's a good start again. But the question is, what what kind of people 
will that organization need? Uh, obviously, they're not counter-terrorist people that are hunting terrorists with drones and things. They're not classic espionage types. So what's the kind of culture you want to create? How do you work with other agencies? For example, you mentioned I worked in Department of Energy. I would submit the Department of Energy is one of the leading players. And how will this new unit in the CIA cooperate with the Department of Energy, intelligence, and the laboratories who have phenomenal knowledge and not replicate capabilities that already exist in the U.S. government? What do you think about the intelligence tools, right? So collection, analysis, dissemination, how do you better align that to deal with the effects of climate change? That's a, a, a most exciting question you can ask me because I, the old intelligence cycle, we call it, uh, priorities, collection, intelligence, analysis, and then dissemination that's what we do whether it's climate change or espionage or, or, or understanding what our rivals are doing that's what we did in the cold war we can still do that in the age of climate change now the questions now are how do we apply those basic tools should they be done in secret do we need spies doing this do we compete with countries or do we cooperate with countries do we do it unilaterally or do we do it multilaterally and, and i think there are exciting questions to reimagine the role of intelligence in the 21st century and the most fun fundamental question, perhaps the most important thing I can say on your show today, is we have a fundamental decision to decide, to make as to whether we compete in the intelligence world as we've traditionally done or cooperate. Because whether it's Russia, China, Iran, countries we consider rivals today, if not adversaries, we need to cooperate on climate change. And we need to apply at least part of the things we did against one another to work with one another, say in the Arctic with the Russians or in the Far East with the Chinese. I did want to ask you a little bit more about that, especially with international allies. What needs to be done in that arena? Because, you know, if we're talking about more collaboration, that means more transparency. And you know the intelligence yes. uh, community does not like transparency. You're right. And there are many people in the intelligence world that are very skeptical that we should be doing this. And and uh, I'm a very, very harsh on that that thinking because that mindset is, is problematic for us. We need to first decide whether, for example, we wanted to create mistrust by spying on one another to know if we're complying with the terms of the Paris Accord or we're going to sow mistrust by taking this new challenge and do what we did in the Cold War or whether we're going to start with transparency open, open and not also fall into the defeat, default position that all, all intelligence must be done in secret and needs secrecy and it doesn't. And that's the exciting part. The mindset needs to change and then the culture of how we do this needs to adapt to this problem. I'll just draw one more example. And after World War II, Robert Oppenheimer, the, the father of the US atomic bomb, approached uh, Harry Truman, the president at the time, and suggested that we find a way to cooperate with states to not get into this trillion dollar, what turned out to be a nuclear arms race that was f sheer folly because we can never use these weapons. Now, I wouldn't say this is as dramatic as that period in, in world history, but we are there where the leaders of the world need to set the tone of how we cooperate. All right. Well, Ralph, thanks so much. We'll watch and see if that mind shift actually happens. Thanks for being Thank on the program. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Coming next, CIS's directive to address cyber vulnerabilities gives agencies 15 days to fix them. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new rules from the government's leader for mitigating cyber risks. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Last year, there were over 18,000 new cyber vulnerabilities identified across both the public and private sectors. In response, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, will direct federal agencies to address and patch weaknesses in their digital platforms. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Greg Tuhill is former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. He's currently Director of the CERT Division at the Software Engineering Institute. General, nice to see you again. It's good to see you as well. How quickly is the cyber threat landscape growing and changing? Well, we're continuing to see more and more uh, complexity being put into the cyber ecosystem as more and more organizations uh, digitize their environment. And it's more than just information technology, it's their operational technology, sensors, internet of things. So the attack surface continues to grow and we're seeing more and more adversarial groups and those could be nation state actors, uh, malicious uh, criminal groups, or just uh, the curious that continue to scan and try to penetrate that cyber ecosystem. You know, 18,000 vulnerabilities is a lot. What is CISA doing to address vulnerabilities in civilian agencies? I think this is a really positive step forward in uh, producing this catalog that not only civilian agencies, but also uh, private sector entities and particularly critical infrastructure can reference as they are taking a look at better managing their risk. During my time at DHS, we did a annual, you know, here are the top 10 vulnerabilities that we're seeing uh, adversarial groups exploit. And we, we were directing uh, different departments and agencies to patch based upon those top 10 vulnerabilities that were being exploited. But now we here we have a, uh, an entire catalog and I'm already seeing some companies that are downloading that catalog and associating it with known nation state actor and uh, cyber criminal group activity as they try to prioritize their actions to patch it and configure and harden their infrastructure. Well, the catalog that you mentioned, it has just been released. It's got 291 vulnerabilities and uh, CIS is directing agencies to fix them within two weeks. Is that doable? In some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. It really depends on the department and agency as well as their infrastructure status. Um, let's not forget that many of the departments and agencies already have patched and have properly configured based upon the threat environment and the availability of all these patches. But there are several uh, organizations that have not. And as you take a look at the scope and scale of the federal government, you know, we have hundreds of different departments, agencies, boards, bureaus, and other government agencies. Uh, so this is a widespread uh, message to all in government, but also a, a klaxon or an alarm bell for folks in critical infrastructure to pay attention to these vulnerabilities as well. And you had mentioned that you had initially, you know, when you were in government, put out the top 10. Why the shift? Why now put out all 291 or whatever, you know, that, that they have decided of those vulnerabilities? Why do it that way? Well, you know, in this case, I think it's a, it's a calculated measure to uh, help out with the risk management. Um, and by prioritizing these uh, almost 300, uh, that's actually a, a good thing and making it actionable for the organizations out there. Now, I will also say, you know, in our role here at Carnegie Mellon and the Software Engineering Institute, you know, we, we've got a catalog uh, that is out there of millions of vulnerabilities. So 
having them go out and identify these uh, nearly 300 as top priorities, I think is helpful in culling through those millions upon millions of known vulnerabilities that are out there. And then further to characterize these as uh, known vulnerabilities that are being acted against by adversarial groups uh, puts a sense of urgency out there for those folks who are looking to manage their risk. Does CISA have enforcement authority? What if agencies don't prioritize it and don't get it done? That's a really good question. And when we were working with the Congress back in 2014 uh, and, and 2015 to kind of characterize what kind of authorities needed to be had, you know, we were using the Defense Department as a model with us. Uh, the U.S. Cyber Command's ability to issue orders across the Department of Defense Enterprise. And we wanted to have something similar within the .gov. So as you take a look at the uh, Cybersecurity Act of 2015, uh, it does say that DHS has the authority to issue these binding operational directives. But I think it's left to be seen as to what kind of consequences there are for uh, departments and agencies who do not adhere to the binding operational directive. Um, I, I think that's still uh, something that ought to be taken a look at. But I, I'm finding, though, when we do a binding operational directive, the departments and agencies are very responsive. What support does DISA offer to the agencies? Well, DISA uh, provides some technical advice and counsel and also leverages uh, tools such as the relationships they have with uh, organizations like mine, uh, the CERT at Carnegie Mellon, as well as other federally funded research and development centers, uh, private companies and the like to all rally together to help solve a lot of these issues. All right. Well, General, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your perspective with us. Nice talking to you. Great to see you again. Thank you very much for having me today. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast. It's available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find them on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.